exclusive podcast from Impact 89 FM. WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to Impact Exposure. Exposure is 88.9 The Impact's one-hour forum discussing relevant issues affecting the MSU community. And now, tonight's Exposure. Welcome to Friday Night Insight. I'm Mike Hogan. Tonight we'll be talking to MSU Provost Kim Wilcox about what a provost is and does. Later on, we're going to be talking to George Blaha about his 29th season as the play-by-play announcer for Spartan football. Later on, Michael Casavana will talk about how he's an endowed professor here at the hospitality business at MSU. He's the father of e-commerce. We're going to be talking with him about that. Uh, we'll be right back with more Friday Night Insight. This is MSU Today, and I'm at the fourth floor of the Hanna Administration Building on campus. Happy to be visiting with uh, MSU's Provost and Vice President for Academic Affairs, Dr. Kim Wilcox. Uh, Provost Wilcox, welcome to MSU Today. Thanks. It's great to be here, Russ. So uh, let's just start out by saying you're about a year into your job now, but I think before we get into that, I think when you get off a campus, a lot of people hear the word provost and aren't even exactly sure what that is. Can you tell us what a provost is and does? Sure, I, sure I can. Uh, I have to tell you a quick, a first, first a quick story. Uh, when I got the job a year ago, my mother, of course, was quite excited, very proud of her son, and uh, I had been out, living out of state for over 20 years. I was moving back to the state. Uh, she lives in Sault Ste. Marie. So I came back, and uh, but before I did that, she called me one day and said, Kim, I mean, I'm going to tell them all my friends about your new job. Everybody's excited, but I have a question. I said, what's that, Mom? She said, what is a provost? <laughs> so she was she was pleased, but she didn't know why she was pleased. So it's pretty pretty understandable. Uh, a, a provost, actually, that my title is provost and vice president for academic affairs, and the second half probably says more than the first. Um, I'm the chief academic officer of the university. Uh, if you think of the faculty reporting to department chairs, department chairs reporting to deans, then the deans report to me. Uh, and I report in turn to the president. And, and so my responsibility is to look at the academic enterprise, uh, what directions we are heading and should be heading, uh, are the students' needs being addressed across the, the range of the colleges and offerings that we have here, are we recruiting the very best faculty. It's, it's a great job because I'm in the center of the academic enterprise. Well, and you've been here now just over a year. What sort of is the state of Michigan State academically? Uh, it couldn't be better. We're in our 151st year. As you know, last year was our sesquicentennial. And we took the occasion to, uh, we, I to use that term liberally, the, the president took the occasion to, to do some thinking about what our next 150 years should be. And uh, she apprised the first 150 as a time when we actually changed higher education in the world. As you know, we were an experiment here in what was then the frontier. Uh, and the, the experiment was, could you make a university that didn't just help the elite, the sons and daughters of the rich elite, but instead helped all the people, uh, the, the real people of, of the countryside of the emerging nation, and was available to them, and taught them skills and information that they could use in their lives. That's why we were an ag school, because 90% of the people at the time were farmers. Um, and the President Simon says, we did a pretty good job of that in the first 150 years. We built around a simple notion of helping plain people. We built around that concept a major university that now is among the, the very best in the world, uh, one of the very best in the United States. Um, and the challenge now is to take that that uh, base and move into the 21st century. So the state of Michigan State, we're number one in you know, so many academic areas. I won't try to list them here. We're in the top ten in just as many or more. And now the challenge is to take that and help the people of the 21st century in the same way we help the people of the 19th and 20th centuries. So what maybe are the two or three main issues on your plate as we head into the next academic year? What are you thinking about and working on? Oh, uh, a few jumped to mind. One is our international programming. Uh, President Hanna started us on a road that now has led to us being a leader in international education in the, in the country. Uh, but we have, have uh, in the last 50 years, while we've created a template for other universities to follow, we've kind of fallen prey to live, reliving the template. So we're challenging ourselves to think of new ways, uh, new new program, uh, programs, new models for how to engage in the world. 
uh, President Simon has suggested we become a, a world grant university, evolving from our land grant university. So we're thinking right now and across the, the, the campus about how we could be uh, engaged in different ways, more fundamental ways with our international partners. Uh, we, of course, are part of the, the uh, revolution that is taking place in biology, uh, the, the world of, of the genome, uh, genetics in general, have, have reshaped how we think of biology. And with our agrarian roots, we certainly have been part of that kind of discussion for, for decades. We are arguably one of the world's leading centers in plant sciences and the environment. We have a veterinary school, as you know, and zoology and the rest. So we're, we're looking at ways that we can build on our basic science programs uh, and our shared knowledge across plants and animals in, in new ways. Um, we are, are working hard right now at making sure the world-class knowledge that is on campus is available to and understandable by all of our students. Uh, from freshmen, we have high school programs too, as you know, for freshman students on up. Uh, we are, we're bu building a new residential college in art, the arts and humanities that will come online a year from now. We're, we're doing the building renovations this year. We're hiring faculty this year so that in the fall of 2007, we'll actually enroll students in a new residential college on campus. Uh, we're, we're looking at, at both the very cutting-edge knowledge as well as the uh, dissemination to, to all of our students. And you and President Simon have developed uh, an initiative called Boldness by Design. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and, and how that fits into our mission? Sure. Uh, Boldness by Design is President Simon's seven-year plan to re recraft Michigan State University. And she has suggested that there are five areas that we need to concentrate on. One is enhancing the student experience because at its core, a university is about sharing knowledge with the students who come to us and, sp and spend their time here. Uh, increase our research activity, enhance uh, international reach, strengthen stewardship, and strengthen communities, families, and economic life in Michigan and around the world. So five categories of endeavor, research, international, students, stewardship, and communities, family, economic life. Um, that's the, the organizational framework. The aspiration is to become a model for the 21st century. As I shared earlier, we were the model uh, in the last century. Uh, President Simon reminds us that in 1855, Michigan State University was created. All of the universities at the time were of the image of Oxford, Cambridge, and Harvard. They weren't places where regular people went. Michigan State was created for regular people. Seven years later, 1862, President Lincoln signed the Morrill Act, which created the land-grant system. And everyone thinks of land-grant as farm schools and you get land to build a college. True, but that's really not what land-grant was about. Land-grant was about building universities in Michigan State's model. Programs of applied arts and agriculture and access to common people. The agriculture was just because that's what we were doing at the time. The notion was real things for real people. Uh, in seven years, 1855 to 1862, you could argue that we changed higher education in the world because now everybody wants to be engaged with society. So President Simon said that was 1855, and we, did, we changed the world in seven years. 2005, we should be able to do just as much. So she's created a seven-year plan with those five categories, research, students, stewardship, international and communities, families, and economic life. And we're now keen to move ahead in all those areas, and not just move ahead by the usual metrics, but to rethink how we really engage in each of those areas, to recraft, re, 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 rethink the model. In 1855, the world looked pretty small here in mid-Michigan. It was uh, several days' ride to Detroit and much further to the East Coast, and mail was slow. Now in 2006, uh, it's just a few seconds, and your message is in China, Hong Kong, or a few hours and you're there yourself. Uh, so we have to think differently about Michiganders, uh, Michiganders' needs uh, for knowledge and needs for economic development and needs to engage in the world. And we have to think differently about how a university can be a broker for the people of the state and helping them engage with the rest of the world. Can you maybe give me a, a brief example of how we might go about 
reaching each of those because I think for myself the, uh, the the community and economics I'm thinking is is the biomass movement part of that. I think your international uh, movement would include study abroad. I understand you went on a trip yourself this summer. Uh, the, the the learning environment by the students I think is more than just smaller classes. Can you talk a little, expound on each one a little bit? I could expound, but I yeah, yeah. How much how, how much time do you have in this trip? <laughs> uh, let me let me. I'll, I'll use the three examples you used because those are right on target. Um, uh, economic life. If if there's something that's in the press right now, it's energy. We can't get enough oil. We can't afford what we're getting. We're afraid of it not lasting very long. The costs are not just financial, but they're environmental for extracting and, and moving oil. Uh, but we continue to need our freedom in terms of transportation, whether it's by car or by plane, and those, those expectations are growing. So what do we do in the next 20, 40, 50, 80 years when our children and grandchildren are going to be uh, looking at the same kinds of desires that we have now? Uh, what we're suggesting at Michigan State University is to move from a petroleum-based economy to a, a bioeconomy. And usually when you think of petroleum, you think of gas and oil. But remember, plastics come from petroleum. And if you look around any room, wherever you might be sitting, and just uh, uh, appreciate how much of what you're surrounded by is petroleum. That's part of the petroleum-based economy. Uh, chemicals. Uh, many of the chemicals that are used in industrial applications and home applications are petroleum-based. Uh, pharmaceuticals, there's an awful lot of drugs that have petroleum-based. Uh, across our entire economy and across our, our world these days are uh, products and energy sources that are petroleum-based. Many of those, uh, some would argue all of those, can be replaced by other kinds of raw materials. and the raw material that comes quickest to mind are plant-based raw materials. It turns out Michigan is blessed by several things. One is a diversity of climates. We have a whole bunch of microclimates in the state, which allows us to grow sugar beets on one side of the state and cherries and blueberries on the other side of the state. Uh, that's, that's the nature of, of the, the geography that we have, and that means we can grow all kinds of different kinds of plants, some that, some that may well be best suited for transformation into plastics, some that might be best suited for simply burning as a fuel source. Um, but what we lack right now is an understanding of which plants for which uses and the processes that we would need to transform the raw vegetative state into, into a usable product. Where better to do that than Michigan State University? We have people who have been studying these questions for decades. And uh, we're, we're, we're heartened now that, that that investment on the part of our forebears is, is be, being seen as more and more value by society. International, uh, we are among the very top every year in numbers of students who study abroad. We send more students abroad than nearly any other university in the country. We have faculty, more faculty abroad than most anyone else, and, and similarly more faculty and students coming to, to our campus, very international campus. What I've suggested, though, is what we have is a lot of our students going to Western Europe and a lot of students coming here from East Asia. Uh, we don't have a balance. Uh, we don't have a, a strategy for what we're trying to achieve with that. We have uh, connections with, almost, with people in almost every country in the world, literally on all the continents we have activity. Um, but some of those are pretty individualized, one professor with one professor uh, in one country, another professor with another professor in another country. It isn't the kind of impact, uh, and it isn't the kind of, of integrated activity that characterizes the university. Here, it's the faculty member in the laboratory who works with people in the community, in the business sector, who has students in the classroom, who work in their lab, who goes to the, it's a It's a connection among people uh, on and off campus that, that makes us thrive. And I think we can bring some of that to our efforts off campus. So we started a series of discussions about a more uh, strategic and a more robust engagement in, in individual places in the world. Um, uh, what other, you, you, you had some good ones there. The student learning, student learning yeah. Uh, that, the residential college is a mm -hmm. great place to jump off on that. Uh, as you know, we have three primary residential uh, programs, James Madison in public policy, uh, Lyman Briggs in natural science, and now we'll have a, a new, new college in arts and humanities. 
but we have a whole range of other living learning options. We have over eight, 15,000, I don't want to misquote, I think it's 15,000 students living on our campus in our residence hall system, largest in the world. Many of those students are involved in less formal living learning experiences. Uh, we have one in engineering, we have one in business that aren't full colleges, but nonetheless integrate uh, academic work into their uh, into their, their residential life. And we have a whole series of residential life programs that are academically oriented for students in particular with particular interests, but also for a general student body. We're, we're now looking to expand that program, with residential college being a great example, but also try to extract from that set of experiences the principles that make Michigan State University students unique and provide them with unique uh, credentials when they leave the, leave the campus and build on those. Um, I believe that this is a unique place in the world and I would hope that every student who leaves here looks different from students from any other place because they, sh they should given, given the opportunities they've had. Uh, Provost Wilcox, if we could con include MSU but step beyond it a little bit, what are some of the issues facing higher education not only today but the ones you see down the road? I would imagine one is obviously the constant struggle for enough funding to keep these the excellent resources we have, but what are some of the issues you think we're going to be hearing about down the road? Um, in, in a simple sense, the challenges facing higher education are many of the same ones that face all of society. Yes, uh, funding, but we, we know that the Medicare program is struggling with funding and Medicaid is struggling with funding and, and so many other basic services, uh, K-12 education, are, are struggling. Uh, it isn't so much a struggling with funding in my mind as, as a uh, realignment of priorities but also a rethinking of revenue streams. We're all looking at different ways of, of getting to the same goals that I think we've had for a long time. Uh, that's one, and again, that pervades society. Another one that, that uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about is the increasing s diversity uh, between those with resources in our society and those without. Uh, as you know, the rich are getting richer and richer, and the poor are getting poorer and poorer <coughs> in a relative sense. And uh, as a university that's committed to being accessible to all members of our society, that's an important challenge for us. Uh, we don't want to become a place where only rich people can go. That's what Oxford was in 1855, and we don't want to be that. Uh, we, we are proud to, to say we're not. Uh, we continue to roll large numbers, the largest in the, in the Big Ten, of students who are at financial risk uh, by various measures. We, we have more African-American students on our campus than any other campus on, uh, in the Big Ten. So we're looking to make sure that our campus stays accessible to everyone, regardless of their uh, financial background, regardless of their racial ethnic background. Um, but that's becoming more and more of a challenge. Um, it's, uh, it's unfortunate to say Michigan is one of the most segregated states in the nation. Uh, we have created an environment where people of different backgrounds and different resources and different educational experiences live in different places in this state. Uh, we feel an obligation to to not fall prey to that that uh, societal trend. Um, certainly the the economic challenges are going to be important ones. Universities, even ones like Michigan State that have been so engaged in society, are looking to become more and more engaged. Um, 20, 30 years ago when people worried about the economy, they didn't very often think of universities. Now everyone thinks of universities. Bill Gates has, has claimed that the research universities are the secret to success for this country in the 21st century. Uh, and I, I agree with him. Um, it isn't going to be so much about our manufacturing capacity because everyone in the world is going to have that. We will always be great. We always have been and we have the skills here and the skilled people in the state to do it. But so will others. Um, it's going to be about innovation and crea creativity as much as anything else in terms of driving economies in the future. Uh, so we, we are concerned about that. We're focused on moving in a way that provides access to all of our students or all of our potential students, engages in society in ways that, that will shape it. Uh, that it's, it's in some ways, heady, those are heady challenges, but it's exciting to be part of it and to, have, to think you have a chance of maybe making a difference in those ways.
If we can back up and if you can just tell us how a young boy in the early 70s comes from Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, down to East Lansing. Just talk about how how you ended up here and then maybe how your time in the Com Arts College just sort of shaped you and your time at MSU. Just reminisce for us a bit. Oh, I'll hear. I'll wax. I'll wax on here. Uh, <laughs> I, I was. I grew up in the UP and had a, had a great experience and still have family there. I came to Michigan State for a few reasons. One, uh, they did a great job of communicating with me as a high school student. I got communication from all kinds of places. I really felt um, engaged with Michigan State from a distance. Uh, and I had been down for a few events uh, over the years uh, through high school and others. Um, but I also came because of Lyman Briggs College, actually. It was a college and not a school. And it was a place that purposely said, this, this is where students interested in science can come and study, even if you're not quite sure what you want to be when you grow up, which is kind of what I was. Um, and it was a great environment. I lived in a residence hall, as we all did when we came here, and m made friends with people from places I'd never heard of before. And and uh, my world just exploded in those first uh, 10 weeks. We were on terms then, 10-week term. Um, those first 10 weeks, uh, the world exp exploded for me. I opened a door that I'd never known about. Um, I spent uh, four years on campus, two of them in Lambert Briggs, then I, ch I changed majors to audiology and speech science. I found my science, it was speech science, and um, had a chance in, in that department to do some science, some acoustics and the rest, but also work with little children, which was a pretty fun kind of science, it seemed to me at the time, and still does. Uh, and across the four years, I, I think several things happened. One, I learned about how big the world was. I didn't know there was such a thing as audiology and speech science when I came here as a freshman. Uh, I learned that there weren't too many topics that weren't accessible at Michigan State, both in terms of availability as well as people wanting to help you understand them. Um, I just wandered into this program, uh, and people there were very welcoming. Uh, uh, even though I was halfway through my career on the campus, it was like I'd been with them forever. And they helped me succeed. Uh, they helped me succeed here, and they helped me succeed in, in leaving here and going to graduate school and, and moving on. Um, I, I also learned that people from all walks of life and all parts of the state uh, at the time and across the country, um, have the same kinds of values. And at the, at the end of the day, people are people. When you come from a smaller town, you're not quite sure what you'll find when you go outside. Uh, and, but outside looked an awful lot like inside. And I think Michigan State created an environment where, where I could appreciate that. So, it, yeah, I've, I've said many times it changed my life, and, and, uh, and in all in good ways. Anything important I've left out or just some final thoughts you'd, you'd like to make on your goals or your mission or just anything that's on your mind? Uh, I don't know about goals and mission. I might maybe. But, but the thing that comes to mind is uh, I have had one of the opportunities that most of the alums of Michigan State University dream of. I graduated. I left. I hadn't lived in the state in 29 years and came back as provost. I now am sitting in an office where I look out the window at the Red Cedar Rapids. The ducks are below my window. The football stadium's across the trees. Wells Hall in the distance. I see the smokestacks every morning. This is an, a dream for most anybody who's ever graduated from this place. And I get to live it. And not only that, I get to have a role in making it better. I get to talk to people from around the world who are smart beyond belief in areas that you can't understand. Um, I get to think about what the place could be for the next generation of students. It's a rare treat. <clears throat> so I count myself blessed every day. Um, I also have had the, the unique opportunity to come back to a, a place and reflect on it, again, where all of our hundreds of thousands of alumni don't get the chance to come back and see what the place looks like as an adult, as, as someone later in, in life. And the, the single thing that has struck me most is the sense of community that pervades Michigan State University. I've had the privilege of working with lots of universities at and with and for and by uh, over the years, large research universities across the country. I don't know of any that has the sense of community that this one does. Uh, people here are truly committed, not just to the university, but to each other. 
And that, I think, is at the heart of what makes this place successful. So it's been great to be part of it, it but it's been just great to come back and appreciate that it, that's what makes Michigan State what it is. So thank you. Thank you, sir. Dr. Kim Wilcox is provost and vice president for academic affairs at Michigan State University. And the website for a lot more about what he's doing and thinking about it's provost.msu.edu. And for more MSU Today, you can visit us on the web at msutoday.com. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to The Impact Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Listen to The Mechanical Pulse Friday nights from 10 until 2 a.m. to hear a wide variety of electronic music you won't hear anywhere else. Impact Prime Time. Would it be crazy if you packed your bags and left for a week, a month, a year? What if you left for two years? What if you were going far away to help in a village on the edge of the Gobi Desert? To spend time with people the rest of the world only reads about? To teach children and learn a thing or two about yourself? Would that be crazy? Peace Corps. Life is calling. How far will you go? To find out more, call 1-800-424-8580 or visit PeaceCorps.gov. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. This is MSU Today and visiting at Spartan Stadium today with the voice of Spartan football on the radio, George Blaha. And George, it's a pleasure to have one of Michigan's most recognized voices on our program today. Well, thank you, Russ. It's great to be on with you. Uh, Michigan State and Spartan football is uh, so dear to my heart and uh, so important to me that uh, it always uh, brings a smile to my face to get uh, to Spartan Stadium, that's for darn sure. Well, let's start at the beginning. I like to ask people like you that are so esteemed in your field, uh, did you always know you wanted to be a broadcaster? I did. Um, you know, I think there are kids who, who think they want to be a fireman uh, or a, you know, a, a pilot or a, or a policeman or who knows, or a doctor. I, I thought... From the very first time that I ever gave any thought to what I wanted to be when I grew up, that I would love to be the guy who describes the games on the radio so that kids like me at the time <clears throat> could kind of fall asleep with that uh, uh, transistor under the pillow listening to ball games from far off places and and could just imagine what was going on, uh, whether it's on the diamond or on the football field or on the basketball court. Well, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you first got into broadcasting then. Born in Detroit, but raised in Iowa and went to Notre Dame. Maybe you just kind of walk us through how you got into broadcasting. Well, when I finally finished school, and I, and I knew I wanted to do this, and I had you know, done a few stints uh, offering my services for nothing uh, as I was going to school, uh, I finally decided that it was time to take a, a real shot at this career. And and I've been warned that, you know, there's some difficulties, you know, you're a million to one to even get somebody to answer your letter. And then when you go into an interview for a job, there are at least 10 other people who are as qualified as you are who want the same darn job. So, be patient and understand it's a long shot. But when I decided to take a run at it, I called Ernie Harwell. I wrote him a letter, actually. And Ernie recommended that I take this short broadcasting course at what was called the Institute of Broadcast Arts. It doesn't really exist anymore. But it wasn't one of those long, drawn-out uh, broadcasting school uh, curriculums. Uh, it was pretty much short to the point and basically based on uh, on the air uh, aspirations. And when I was at this school, uh, lo and behold, Van Patrick, the late great Van Patrick, a fabulous football announcer, voice of the Lions, voice of Notre Dame, and a terrific baseball announcer in his own right back in the day with the Tigers, um, was our uh, keynote speaker at our graduation. 
and uh, he heard that I was the aspiring sportscaster in the class, so he kind of took me under his wing and, and really gave me a lot of good advice and encouragement. And I think uh, his encouragement and the encouragement uh, my late mom, God rest her soul, gave me uh, back in the day just uh, inspired me to go ahead and really take a run at this. And uh, so I fired off some tapes, uh, got uh, a few uh, offers uh, of jobs. One was in 29 Palms, California. Uh, another was in Rapid City, South Dakota. <clears throat> and another was in Adrian, Michigan. Well, I listened to Ernie Harwell and Ray Lane do Tiger games and really admired the work that they did, as I mentioned Ernie before. And Ray Lane was doing uh, sportscasts on Channel 2 in Detroit. So I uh, made an appointment to see him. He came out, took some time, 15, 20 minutes, sat with me in the lobby at Channel 2 one afternoon as he was getting ready for a 6 o'clock sports. And I asked him, I said, Ray, uh, what do you think here? I got this opportunity, this opportunity, and this opportunity. He said, well, number one, don't go to 29 Palms, California. You don't know what the owner of this station might be like. You could be out of a job, and you'd be in 29 Palms, California. That's a long way from home. He says, as a matter of fact, I think I'd stay closest to home, which I did. Started in Adrian, and uh, I've spent my entire career in the state that I love, Michigan. So it really worked out. So how did you then become, for first get the opportunity at Spartan football then? Well, uh, from WABJ and Adrian, uh, I, I went to uh, Lansing looking for work, found a job at WJIM. I wanted to move, you know, from a small market to uh, a little bigger market. And uh, WJIM, then owned by the late Hal Gross, did high school football, high school basketball, and did some uh, Michigan State football. That was back in the day when there were a number of uh, different outlets for uh, not only Spartan football, but Michigan football and some of the other uh, big schools in, in our part of the country and in other parts of the country. So there was more than one origination. So WJIM had one of the originations, and after I uh, broadcast some high school football and high school basketball, uh, Tim Stout, who's a local sportscaster here and has had a wonderful career here in Lansing, who was our TV guy over at WJIM Channel 6 in Lansing at the time, uh, and I came out. We traded back and forth on the spring football game, and they decided to let, have me do the play-by-play -play and, and Tim do the color the following fall and I believe we did games together for two or three years that way and uh, I can can't even begin to tell you what a thrill it was to actually broadcast a big time Big Ten football game and uh, that 1971 season for Michigan State with Duffy Doherty on the sidelines an absolute immortal uh, was uh, something I'll never ever forget, and I've I've had a real love for Michigan State ever since then, because you know this is where I got an opportunity really to uh, to start, um, shall I say the um, the higher end of my career uh, maybe, and it was it was thrilling then. It's still thrilling. I love college football, and I love coming to East Lansing in the fall. I was going to ask maybe some of your favorite moments from broadcasting games, and when you said 1971, I think that was the Eric Allen 350-some-odd-yard game. But are there just some plays or some moments that stick out in all those broadcasts? Well, the Flea's 350-yard game was certainly one of them. Uh, we were down in West Lafayette, and, uh, you know, he uh, all of a sudden he's, the numbers kept mounting, and, and I think somebody told Duffy that he was – close to the record and so Duffy either didn't take him out when he was going to or put him back in late and the flea got the record and stood for a long long time I'd say that day of course um, Levi Jackson's run to beat uh, number one Ohio State was another 
There were some great games um, with Notre Dame, which is my alma mater, which always stood out to me. Uh, and I and I think we I need to maybe clarify something when when you broadcast Spartan games and you play against your school, of course you have feelings for your school, and I want the Irish to win every game but one. And uh, and I and I <clears throat> excuse me, I truly hope that they do, but I certainly don't want them uh, to beat the Spartans. And I um, I've been asked that question so many times. It's kind of hard for me to imagine people would ask that question, but I guess maybe it's natural. I always tell them, look, when Charlie Baggett, who is one of my favorite people and a Spartan quarterback uh, of great fame in the past and all Big Ten selection. Uh, when he coached at Minnesota against Michigan State, do you think, as much as he loves Michigan State, that uh, he didn't want Minnesota to win? Uh, you know, I'm here and I've been here for a long, long time and uh, yet those games are still very special to me. Notre Dame has such great tradition <clears throat> and to tell you the truth, this rivalry with Michigan State has such great tradition Notre Dame, and it, and they did it wisely. I'm sure it was good for them, uh, but it was even better for Michigan State. Actually, helped the Spartans get on the uh, the national radar way back in the late '40s when they scheduled uh, the Spartans. And so those games have been special to me. Uh, and I think there've been some great finishes, by the way, in those games. Um, so. Uh, those kind of ball games with the traditional rivals, wins over Michigan are always sweet, uh, obviously. And and I think the the upset of Ohio State when uh, the Spartans were four touchdown underdogs and Bill Burke and company got that win to shock the Buckeyes at Columbus um, back in the uh, late 90s was a, was a huge, huge uh, memory for me. And, and I think the, frankly... Uh, the win over Steve Spurrier uh, on, on New Year's Day in the Citrus Bowl for the Spartans on a, a last-second field goal. In fact, last play of the game field goal was absolutely uh, something that will stay in my mind forever. George Blaha, you're probably even more well-known, of course, as the voice of the Detroit Pistons. Now, how did that opportunity come about? Well, that came um, after, actually, I got the Michigan State football position. Um, I had been doing uh, some news on an all-news station in Detroit and continued to do MSU football for WJIM up here. And uh, at the time, uh, a fellow that I knew uh, from my earlier days in broadcasting, Tom Campbell, had moved over to WJR and uh, told then-acting sports director Frank Beckman, of WJR, hey, if you ever need somebody, I have this friend who uh, is so knowledgeable and uh, is such a hard worker and all of that, all those good things you say about your friends, uh, you ought to give him a shot. And Frank said, well, I really don't have a sports casting job per se. The only thing I have is uh, piston basketball. And so uh, Tom said to me, this is what he has. And I said, well, I've done Michigan State football. I have not done uh, college basketball, only uh, high school basketball. But I sent him a tape of hold against Muskegon Heights in a, a Class B championship game, I guess, in 74 or 75. And uh, off that tape, they hired me. And I, I learned 25 years later that one of the people who applied for that job at the time was Bob Costas, who had done uh, the Spirits of St. Louis, or the Spirit of St. Louis in the ABA, and was looking to get back into basketball. And uh, so, obviously, uh, Frank was very open-minded when he listened to my high school tape, but I do think that if I hadn't been able to submit a college football tape to go with it, to give it a little more credibility, obviously a Michigan State Spartan college football tape, I may not have gotten the job. Could I ask the same question then? Obviously there's been three championships for the Pistons, but just things that stick out in your Pistons career. Well, my my favorite memory is the first game I ever did at Kobo, uh, Kobo Arena in Detroit. Uh, the Washington Bullets, as they were called then, 
came to town. Dick Mata, a great, great coach, uh, was coaching against the Pistons. And I'm doing my first game. And when Wes Unseld, a future Hall of Famer and a mountain of a man, and Bob Lanier, a future Hall of Famer and a mountain of a man, walked out for the opening tip. I shouldn't say center jump because those guys didn't jump real well. Um, Bob probably jumped better than Wes back then anyway. But for the opening tip, I almost had to pinch myself. I said, this is this is a man's game. I better buckle up my seatbelt and get ready to roll. But it was so exciting to do that game that uh, on my way home, and I was living in Okemos at the time, uh, right outside Lansing, uh, I, tr- I turned the wrong way, never even noticed it. Next thing I knew, I was in Gross Point. That's a long way from Okemos. So I had to turn around and head home after that. But it was very, very exciting. That was exciting. Um, the the championships, uh, actually even getting to the finals in, in 88, winning in 89 and 90, uh, <clears throat> those things were huge. And, uh, and then finally winning another one in 04. Uh, were absolutely terrific, but you know there there's so many different games along the way that that stick out in your mind, and, and seeing some of the greatest players in the world from some of the most unbelievable vantage points you can imagine. I was walking through a a uh, shopping mall in Boston, I don't know, ten years ago or so, and I saw a panoramic of the old Boston Garden a game going on on the inside. So I looked closer at the picture. And I saw that uh, the Pistons were playing. So I said, well, I either had to be at the radio location or at the TV location. I looked at the TV location, saw the back of my bald head, and said, my God, I'm in this picture. And then I remembered where they put you in Boston Garden. They took up almost like a card table and set it up just off the floor at midcourt. You were so close to the action, uh, you were almost in danger there. And that's where I got to watch the likes of Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, and and Robert Parrish go up against the great Piston teams with Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, Bill Lambeer, Vinnie Johnson, Dennis Rodman, and the rest. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, you can't believe you're getting paid to do. Uh, you're just so happy to be there. Well, George, there's a lot of great radio stations out there, and you've worked on a lot of them, and they're all good, but there must be something special knowing this year you'll be back on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. You know, Russ, the neat thing about that is when I first started doing Piston games, uh, as I said a moment ago, uh, I was on WJR, and it was amazing to me that you know, my family out in Iowa could listen to the games clearly uh, every night I was on and would call me and repeat things that, I've, that I had said. So, you know, I understand uh, how significant it is to have our Spartan games back on WJR. <clears throat> and as you know, back in Michigan State's glory days, they were on WJR. And so uh, I think it's only fitting that at this point uh, you'll be able to hear Michigan State football uh, not only on our great network throughout this state, and it is a a sensational network. Our listening audience was higher than anybody else's in this state last year, even before WJR. Now it's only going to get better. and, And so Spartan fans are going to get a real treat. I don't know how much thought you give to this, George, but having a kind of a radio background myself, I think about the iPods and the satellite radio, and I know television was supposed to kill radio and it didn't, but any thoughts on maybe where all this technology is leading us and who knows where you might be heard and on what devices down the road? I guess I'm just fortunate that Michigan State wants me to do their games, and I'll let all the technology take it where it may. How about, George, just some final thoughts on any advice for a young person like you out in Iowa or might be Bloomfield Hills or Toledo or somewhere who wants to break into this business? It's obviously different, but I guess maybe in a way there's more places to go. There were only a handful of media outlets. Then what would you tell a young George Blaha today? Russ, I would tell him, first of all, don't be afraid to go to a small town. If you're not from a small town, that seems like, oh, I'm going to be bored I won't get to cover the Tigers and the Lions. I'll have to cover, you know, a Gaylord High football or something like that. Well, you know, that's where you really learn. 
and that's where you'll be an important part of that community. Don't be a JV player in a big town. Be on the varsity in a small town. Cover the news. Cover it all. Learn the business. And then when you do get an opportunity, uh, you'll be prepared. Plus, it's a lot of fun. I'm not so sure I wouldn't tell somebody that's in a small town and has learned how to make a buck or two on the side and likes it there to go ahead and stay there. There's something beautiful about small town radio and the high school game on Friday night if it's football or the games in the middle of the week and on the weekends in basketball. There's a lot to be said about uh, small town radio, but the but the bottom line is you can learn, and I think that's where there are still great opportunities. A lot of these small stations carry a lot of uh, networky type programming. They don't have as many DJs as they used to have, but they almost all want to cover the high school sports. And if you have an opportunity to be that person and maybe also do a little news up there so you understand what journalism is all about, you can learn a lot and be prepared when your break comes. George, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Any closing thoughts for Spartan fans around the world? Well, you know, I think that this is a magnificent university. As I sit up here in the press box right now as we do this interview, looking out over the campus and taking a look at Beaumont Tower and uh, and the uh, look in the other direction at the MSC uh, smokestacks, you realize the, the history of this great school, um, the tradition that's here, all the growth that there has been um, academically and uh and in terms of the socioeconomic impact that Michigan State's had, not only on our region but our entire country and, and globally as well, this is a heck of a school. And, uh, and for my money, it's the most beautiful large school campus anywhere. If there is a prettier one, I haven't seen it. And in broadcasting games for umpteen years, I've seen an awful lot of uh, universities. And I and I love campuses. I, I like to browse around, you know, check them out. There's nothing to me um, more uh, interesting and beautiful than a college campus. But this one is as good as it gets when you're looking at a, a big school campus. It's magnificent. If anybody's thinking about whether they should apply to school or whether they'd kind of want like to guide their children uh, in terms of applying down the road, don't leave Michigan State off the list. And, and when, you're, uh, when your child gets here, he or she's going to love spending Saturday afternoons in Spartan Stadium. I guarantee you that, Russ. Thank you, George. George Blaha, the radio voice for Spartan football and the radio and TV voice for Detroit Pistons basketball. And for more MSU Today, you can visit us on the web at msutoday.com. You're listening to Exposure only on 88.9 The Impact. Every Sunday, 88.9 The Impact brings you music from around the globe. From 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., you can hear a wide variety of world music on the Global Sounds. Then from 2 to 6 p.m., stay tuned for the best in reggae artists like Bob Marley and Peter Tosh on the Reggae Sunsplash. Only on 88.9. The impact. Hold on a second, Max. Pause the game. Why hasn't she called me back? He just called her. Becky, it's me. Pick up the phone. I know you see my number on your caller ID. Here he goes again. He's starting to piss me off. Why haven't you called me back? This is the fourth message I left you. Listen to him. You do not want to get me mad. Number one, I told you not to go out. Number two, I told you to check in with me. Why are you always doing this to me? Does he think he owns her? Who do you think you are? You do not want me to get ugly. Should I say something? What are you, stupid or something? Call me back. I can't believe the way she treats me. The way she treats you? How about the way you treat her, man? Speak up. Just because it isn't physical doesn't mean it's not abuse. To learn more, go to seeitandstopit.org. This public service message is brought to you by the Teen Action Campaign, the Family Violence Prevention Fund, and the Ad Council. You're listening to Exposure on 88.9 The Impact. Phone lines are open at 432-3893. And now, back to Exposure. 
Hello, this is Governor Jennifer Granholm. As governor, I've traveled to every region of our state and met thousands of families and workers, and no matter their background or where they live, Michigan workers have one thing in common. We have a great work ethic. And Michigan's hardworking citizens have a governor and a government that respects that work and protects it. Earlier this month, my administration took a number of steps to protect your pocketbooks. We announced a new pilot project to make home and auto insurance available to residents in Metro Detroit and Genesee County at lower rates. Because insurance rates should be determined by how you drive and not where you live. And last week, I sent a letter to the White House urging President Bush to reconsider his recent decision to exclude Michigan from receiving additional funding for home heating assistance this winter. This past year, more than 470,000 Michigan families relied on the state's home heating assistance programs to stay warm, and natural gas costs continue to rise. I will not sit quietly while states like Virginia and North Carolina, where climates are more moderate, get an additional amount of funding while the families in Michigan are left out in the cold. And in my effort to fight for everyday citizens, I'm also proud to sign legislation creating an earned income tax credit for workers in Michigan. Like the federal credit, Michigan's new tax credit will help the working poor keep more of what they earn. More than 660,000 Michigan families earning below $35,000 each year already qualify for a federal tax credit worth up to $4,700, depending on the size of their family. Now, thanks to the Michigan Earned Income Tax Credit, Michigan's lowest wage earners will have up to $880 more in their pocket, and it's about time. That's $880 to help pay for education, health care, insurance, home heating costs, gas, whatever else they need. Reducing the cost of insurance, fighting for our fair share of federal assistance for home heating, creating a tax credit to help working people, it's all part of my plan to help families work and thrive here in Michigan, especially during times of economic challenge. Thank you for listening.